Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest working people on the boards and are, well, Broadway's Backbone. Welcome to episode 33. Our special guest is Scott Barnhart. In five, four, three. Welcome, Scott Barnhart of Broadway's Backbone. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you, Brad? I am good. Uh, so I just flew in from New York City. I'm here in West Hollywood, where you now live. Beautiful Hollywood, California. Yes, and we're both from Southern California. Yes. So um, where are you from and how did you get started? So I grew up in Orange County, just south of here, Disneyland. Um, not actually Disneyland, but Tustin, California. I loved it down there. It was a great, great place. But I went to New York at 18 for for college. So I haven't actually been back in, I think I think it was 15 or 16 years since I've lived in California. So this is the first time as an adult, like a grown man living in California, which is kind of cool. Wow. So you, uh, in New York City, you went to school on an island. That's, what island is that? <laughs> Staten Island. Oh, right, right, right. That is New York City. <laughs> that other, that fifth <laughs> not talked about borough. Um, yeah, I went to Wagner College on Staten Island. And were you a musical theater major? I was a, it's technically a theater and speech major, and I got a business minor. And uh, I loved it. It was a small liberal arts school, so I got to uh, take lots of nerdy classes and lots of other subjects. So it wasn't a conservatory, but we got a lot of really solid training because we were so close to the city. Um, I was able to sort of learn the city without living in the city so that when I graduated, it wasn't such a shocking transition to, to move into the city. I had like a group of friends and um, knew where auditions were and oh. you know knew, knew a, a rough idea of what, how the city worked. Did you come in town for auditions during college? I did. You did. I did. I I got a, I think I got a B in acting my junior year because I had a callback for the national tour parade, and I I had to miss a class because I was going to that callback in a snowstorm. Um, I didn't book it, and I got a B, but it was worth it. Oh well, no, that's a good story. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I did audition. I auditioned a lot. Um, uh, I was such a go getter, and I auditioned for like summer stock. I did summer stock every year, but every year um, of college, you know, over the summer. So, you know, that you would have to go into the city and audition. And when did you get your equity card? 2002, it was like a year or two out of school. Um, I did Theater by the Sea in Rhode Island. Oh, I've worked there recently a lot. Yeah, that's where I got my equity card. Oh, that's a good story. Yeah, and it was lovely because I was supposed to get it at the end of the, something happened where I was supposed to get it at the end of the season and I was, thrilled about that and I was going to be there for three shows and something happened like a few weeks before I got there that contracts worked out that they needed an equity member for the whole season so they bumped me up at the beginning of the season so I was actually equity the the whole season and I got insurance because of oh, me nice. working there like it ended up working out beautifully it's the first time I was equity deputy Ooh. so I could learn the contract did you take it seriously of one hundred percent. Are you kidding? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm assuming. I read that rule book and <laughs> filled out those forms and all of it. Yeah. Oh, good for you. Yeah. I've only done equity deputy. Well, once I did it, I took it seriously. Once I was, I didn't at all. 
You know, it's, that's terrible. Yeah, I always I'm going to edit that part out because I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> I always took it. I've done it a few times, um, and I always took it very seriously. Um, and now, now as an older union member, I'm always the first one to make the younger person do it. Because oh. I actually do think it's a great way for someone younger to um, learn the contract and learn what the rules and regulations are. And also just because I'm happy for someone else to do it. <laughs> oh, no, I get it. But it is a business, and it's something that we definitely need to learn. Yeah. And so that's that's important. It's a good – it can be a good tool to learn a contract. Yeah. I'll just go through your Broadway shows. Uh, yeah. Big River. Yep. You did the Bye Bye Birdie at Encores. Yep. Does that count as Broadway? No, but I'm just saying it because that's how we met. That's so, how we met. So that's a very important – Brad played my father. I just I would like to put that I would like to put that on the record is that Brad Bradley definitely played my father. Yeah. And we didn't have a mother. We did not have a mother. And Sarah Jane Everman yes. was our was my sister. Well that, that show was a big Your turning daughter. point for me because I played a father for the first time and all of a sudden I realized I'm getting older. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the big river experience for you, you talk about that show with such reverence. I did not see it. Yeah. Um, and I did see the Spring Awakening that was just there, which is also Deaf West. You would light up when you talked about Big River, and why was it such a big deal for you? Besides, um, it was your Broadway debut. It was but... my Broadway debut, and it was just beyond special. It was the... it A, like, now in this, like, world where we talk about diversity and we talk about inclusion... I feel like Deaf West was doing this a decade ahead of the conversation. Um, and that, and I didn't have the words for it, but that was part of the thing that was special about Big River was that here we were, I was immersed in a deaf community and in a deaf culture, and I was learning about the culture and the world as well as we were projecting it to the world. We were showing the world this culture that's often like oppressed and hidden. And that's magical like that that part of it the process of it was so unique and special and the incorporation of sign language into a show serves on so many levels to heighten an experience because it gives you physical subtext mm. it it it's movement it's movement in a way that we're not accustomed to seeing um so it's unique it's interesting um it's part of the storytelling and with that show you know Deaf West, I find, they really always knock it out of the park when it's a show about two worlds. When we see a deaf world and a hearing world trying to work together or or struggling with communication. I mean, Spring Awakening was, I thought, was stunning. Mm -hmm. I loved, I loved what they did with that show, and I think Big River um, had very similar themes, and that's why it resonated. And you know, between it being my first job, and it's, it's that job that no matter what else I do um, it, it will always be artistically unique and special and cherished um, I still you know this is many many years later and people still come up to me and they talk about the show if they saw it they talk about how moving it was mm. they talk about specific moments and beats of a show um, and that's uh, I don't know that that's happened on any other contract for me. Um, so I, I know knowing that I was a part of something that touched people, and then I got to tour with it for a year. So uh, I grew up on that job. You know, it was that it was a year and a half of my life that 
I got to know the industry. I got to learn sign language. I got to see the world. We went to Japan. I'd never been to a foreign country before that oh, job. Wow. So it really just, it, it hit so many aspects of myself. And as I've grown up, I've, I've learned about myself. I'm a, I'm a compulsive student. I'm a compulsive learner. And the fact that I got to get paid to learn sign language was amazing. Yeah. It's what made it so special and made me, you know, I never grew tired of doing that show. Like, it was, it was really unique. And it was selfless. Like, there's something about part of the show, the way it's built, is as a hearing actor, sometimes you have to literally give your voice to someone else. You know, if they're, oh. a deaf performer was um, playing a role and they were signing, um, one of the hearing actors would, you, you give your voice to another actor to, and, and then it wasn't just about me. It wasn't about me or my intentions or my, uh, how special am I or people noticing me, didn't matter. It was actually like, what, what is this deaf actor doing? How can I match him? How can we work together? Like the fact that, acting then wasn't just about me mm. I really resonated with me and it's taken a long time to actually like understand what made it so special um, but it, it was it was and it was just joyous people some of those cast members are still lifelong friends yeah. you know I still speak to on a regular basis and when I see them you know Dan, Dan Jenkins who was also in Bye Bye Birdie yes he was you know he's He's always been my role model. He's my hero. He's like a human on a human level, let alone the fact that he played Huck Finn originally yeah. in 1985. And that voice, you know, I, that was the first. Big River was also the first CD I ever owned. Really? Yeah. So, like, it's it's always held a special place in Dan's I had it voice. that tape. Of course you did. <laughs> it's dating yourself because you played my father. Um, but uh, Dan Jenkins' voice has been a voice that's been a part of my life for you know decades yes and then to get to know him and to also know him as a human he's someone i want to be as a human like he was a role model as a human the way he toured the way he um, showed up to work the way he treated other people you know to be around that caliber of human um and humans other so many people on that cast were just really unique and special that um yeah it was, it was a it was a great gig and it's that once in a lifetime gig and it was sort of my first big gig oh that's like yeah. and you it know, was nominated for best revival and yeah and we all got um the company we all got a special tony honor um that year we got the tony honor for uh, excellence in theater something like that so the whole cast got a special citation from the tony awards like what I was 24. Like, I had no business getting a special citation from the Tonys. But it was, it was mind-blowing. It was, like, the perfect yes. gig. And so between your first Broadway show and uh, your second one, that's where you had a little bit of laughs, and we did Bye Bye Birdie, which you met Casey mm -hmm. Nicola, which yep. is great. Um, and then you did uh, the production of The Boyfriend. Yeah, so right after um, Bye Bye Birdie, I, that's when I – so, like, I did Bye Bye Birdie in between the Broadway production and the tour of – Big River. Okay. And then the week that the Big River tour closed, um, I started the the tour of 
the national tour of The Boyfriend that started at Goodspeed. Wait, so, there was some unknown director. Who was it? Oh, was it Dame Julie Andrews. Oh, Julie Andrews, correct. Yeah, yeah so I don't know how, if you're familiar with her work. Um, I, I, I recognize <laughs> the name. How was it working with her as a director? She was lovely. She was, she's everything you want Julie Andrews to be. She was funny, lovely, um, kind, gracious, um, and she was, she was just this presence. She was just this giant presence in the room, but it came with this like maternity and this sweetness and this graciousness that we like associate with like the brand Julie Andrews. But right. it's so legit. It was one hundred percent legit. She treated us all like family. She treated us with reverence and respect, and um, she was really, really lovely and and fun to work with. She called me the cheeky one. That I mean, that to me, I the fact that she called me cheeky. Come on, oh, Julie Andrews called me cheeky. Like that's that's like an adjective that I will use for the rest of that's my life. That's a T-shirt. Julie Andrews called yeah. me cheeky. Yeah, I love that. So it's like, and you're the handsome one, and. <laughs> And you're the tall one, and you, you're the cheeky one. It's like, great. <laughs> you're all, I'll I'm take gonna it. take it. I always got the impression, I knew you around this time, that yeah. you liked touring because you went back to back tours. Yeah, I was on the road pretty consistently. I was away from home for about two years solid, like two full calendar years. I was on the road. Um, and I loved it. I mean, it was also the perfect age. Like, I was 24, 25, 26, somewhere around there. And it was the per- I was unattached to anything. Mm. I stayed in hotels. We traveled. I mean, I travel well. I like travel. Um, I loved seeing the country, seeing so many cities I had never been to. Um, it was. It really brought a lot to me, especially like going to Japan. Like, come oh, on, I got to yeah. be in Japan for a month. Like that was that was magical. So it was great. Definitely by the end of two years, though, to to be untethered. I, you always have this push and pull as an actor of like you want to be untethered and you want to go explore the world but then you want to be home too so it was like finding finding the balance by two years i was ready to be back in the city and to see what the city had in store for me but um while i was on the road i I loved it i loved taking advantage of of the fact that you're traveling on someone else's dime oh it's great it's amazing like that that's pretty cool. It's really cool. Yeah, and I, I tried to take advantage of that. You know, I was, again, I have a funny feeling it's going to be the running theme of this podcast. Like, I'm a nerd, so I would go to Mark Twain's house, you know, when we were in <laughs> Hartford, and I would find, like, weird cultural things nearby to go do and see, and I, I, lo- I love that stuff. That's well, that's what makes it fun, as opposed to seeing the hotel bars, you know, or, yeah, you know, which a lot of people do that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it was fun to... The Riverdance was... cast. That's They said that, that all they did. <laughs> <laughs> no, we definitely had fun. And I feel like, as opposed to like working in New York, when you're on the road, you do sort of become closer with your cast, for better or for worse. Mm. Um, and for in my case, better, because both casts, I have, you know, some of my best friends are from these two experiences, because you can't just go home and go to your life. You sort of go to a hotel room and if that's not going to serve you or the hotel bar, um, that doesn't serve you, then you're going to go hang out with these people who are on the same adventure as you. Yeah. And you get closer and you get tighter, and that's that's pretty cool. I feel my sign language got so much better on the road than it did in New York ah. because 
it was like I was a foreign exchange student. Like I was living and breathing deaf culture every day. If I wanted to go have dinner with someone, I had to sign. Yeah. It was great. It was it was a great reason to get better at sign language. So during your New York life during this period, you were living in a house with four other actors. You're constantly subletting. Yes. How, I mean, I remember that time in my life. How, that time of like the excitement of struggling, but also the annoyance of everyone in the house is constantly showbiz, this and that. Like who's moving in now? How is that period of your life? It's hard. I mean, it's a young man's game, right? Like, yeah. I don't think I could, I don't know if I could do it now. I guess I could if I had to. But um, it, it's, it's exciting and it's fun. And luckily, I was at the house that you're talking about. I lived with three of my best friends from college. And we were all in the business in various um, states of our careers. And we were all figuring it out. So it was nice that they weren't strangers. Yeah. Um, you know, and we all had a base level of communication that we knew how to tell each other what was up and what we were needing. Um, I mean, I was, I was, I was constantly away, so it was weird. I, I had an apartment or this house, a room in a house, but I mean, for about three years, I probably stayed there maybe two months yeah. out of three years. You know, like so, so it was. It's a lot of you know coordinating and a lot of phone calls and a lot of emails saying like I'm unhappy with your sublet um, with the person you put into your room uh, and you just sort of make it work um, but I think back on it with fondness because we were all just so scrappy trying to figure out where we fit and I, I have great fondness for that that time of my life um, you know I'm not necessarily like hopping to get back into that sort of style oh, yeah. of living yeah. um but uh but i do i have great fondness because we were all so idealistic and optimistic and um and i think rightfully so like it was cool we it had a, such great perseverance we were being told no every day and we were like that's okay that's okay what's next what's next what's yeah. next and the whole subletting thing was new for me because from california you don't ever let a stranger in your house to for a period of time yeah and there it's just so common yeah i mean because financially I mean it's all it's all money it's the crazy part it's ultimately all money like you couldn't afford to the whole beauty of being on the road is that you don't have to pay rent so if you were still paying rent mm -hmm. you were losing out on a lot of money and someone needs your room like there was always someone who needed a room in New York like that's just that's like the great you know yeah. forever and ever someone needs a room um, so it was silly not to take advantage of that um, and I think my roommates, they all understood. And I likewise had the similar understanding when people had to do it. And I also met some great friends as sublets. I've been a sublet. Like, it, it's just a part of the business. Yeah, it definitely just, is. You, you know, you deal with. I'm, I try not to be a nightmare of a human around others. So I don't mind. <laughs> You're not. You're not a nightmare. Thanks, at all. Brad. I was fishing for that compliment. Um, You're not a nightmare. I don't know what word I'd use. It's not a nightmare. Great. Well, by not being a nightmare, you, it's fun to. I like meeting people, so it it doesn't. And living with someone is a great way to meet someone. Yeah. And if it's temporary, it's even better because then if they're a nightmare, they're going to be gone soon. Yes. And during this time of your life, you were uh, having some career and creativity blocks. I remember you talking about creating your own show which you did and also working you wanted to work 
I remember you saying that you were jealous because you had some friends that are in recovery, so they had like some type of program in life. So you're like, I want one too. Yeah. So you started the Artist Way. Yeah, I did the Artist Way right after a breakup, and just as I turned thirty. So it was sort of like I had done Big River, I had done the boyfriend tour, I was working regionally, but I was starting to get that like the unrest, that moment of like, well, what's what else is there to learn? Like a perpetual nerd that I am, I wanted to learn more, and. You know, I was in a funk. I was sort of in that... I think at that moment, you know, I had... There was a there was like a period of a year where I was the other guy. I would go in for shows, Broadway shows, and it would be me and another guy, and the other guy would get it. Mm. And I was always like the also-ran, the that other guy, um, who I was close enough to getting the jobs, but I wasn't booking them. And it was, you know, it's... The actor's life I was so frustrated I wanted a job I wanted the job and with that I turned to um, the artist way and I took the course with Julia Cameron at the open center which is down in the village or Soho and it was great all of a sudden it it fueled this fire for writing which the thing about the artist way is that it just sort of gives you these tools to um, look at what is blocking in your life and where your creativity may want to lead you because it's fluid it changes it shifts and we put these ideas and ideals on ourselves and when you start to let go of some of that it can be surprising where it leads you um and for me writing ended up being the thing that that was at the forefront of my artist way experience is that oh i think i'm a writer and my first avenue at it was creating a cabaret for myself at the Metropolitan Room. And I remember being really insecure and um, nervous about it because I think cabaret can be a really tricky genre. It is. Because <laughs> it can be really egotistical or it can be really um, showy. You know, it's like it's some sort of like extended audition. And I knew I didn't want that. I knew I didn't want to just sing like my book, my audition book and show off. I really wanted to tell stories or have a purpose for it. Um, and the artist way really helped guide me towards that to find a purpose for my writing. And, and that's what sort of led me to continue writing. I mean, I'm writing now and it's, uh, it's exciting to watch the process unfold because it, it's still fluid, it changes all the time. But uh, but that was a that was a benchmark for me of like of writing, producing, making my own show, um, and I only did it the one time. Which I'm shocked that you only did it once. I've used aspects of it in other sort of avenues, but I've never actually. I actually hope to do it again at some point or pick it back up. Um, but it was enough to let me know, like, oh, I need to be making more of this stuff as well as performing in it. It really gave me a sense of control. It gave me a sense of accomplishment. I was so proud of it. You were great. I loved it. I sat in the front row. You I was, did. I was at the deaf table. You were at the deaf table. And I was so impressed because it showed me someone taking their career and their self-esteem into their own hands. And I loved that. And it, I mean, it prompted me to do my Let's own do show same, yeah. later. But I think what's interesting about is you opened up your path for the next big thing that was going to come in your life. So it's like this journey that you were on, you were ready for what was ever next, whether it be the artist way or just you trying to be new. Yeah, just 
changing, growing, learning. Yeah. Again, it's like uh, I, I'm for me personally, I was I'm not good at being stagnant. I don't know how to just like um, stay the same. I want I want all of the experiences. I want yeah. to know what things feel like. I want and with that curiosity, I have to keep learning and dabbling and testing my limits. And that's and it for me, it's it's been a great the artist way was a great resource to give me some courage and confidence to to go after that and it's it also gives you the bravery like you know if it was the worst cabaret that's ever been performed who cares who cares it doesn't matter it's ultimately like just trying to push forward it's the process not the result yeah. and that's been that's been really useful for me in my my journey cuz it's funny as i started to write more and I got some opportunities to direct and choreograph. I really was like doubling down on the creative side of things and being uh, a creative and being on the other side of the table. And just as I was really like gunning hard for that, you know, Book of Mormon came and like hooked me in. I was like, oh, I guess I'm not done acting yet. Oh, okay, here we go. The, the next thing that came to your life was this tiny little show. I'm gonna do my pull quote right now. Yeah. Okay, ready? Because Scott was saying hello well before Adele was. That's good. That's going to be your pull quote. <laughs> so, uh, Book of Mormon came into your life, and it was a show that you couldn't even get an audition for. No. Well, it wasn't. It it was in workshop mode, so it was it was this secret project. They knew it was it was known as like the Mormon Project, or mm. everyone knew that the guys from South Park were working on a musical, but it was super secret. It was hush hush, and no one. And it was all insular, so I wasn't in the crowd. So I wasn't in, in the group, so I didn't know what exactly it was. And with that, I couldn't, couldn't get audition. I didn't, I didn't know the people, you know, the people at hand. And, um, but I do remember hearing about it and going like, hmm, Mormon missionaries, that sounds up my alley. That's funny weird South Park dudes like that sounded cheeky. cheeky I know Julie Andrews said I was the cheeky one yes. so uh, and then one day I was I was actually rehearsing a production of Forever Plaid that I was doing up at Cape Playhouse in Massachusetts and I got a call from my agent saying they want to see you for Book of Mormon or I don't even know if they said Book of Mormon it might have been the South Park project and I was like oh oh okay and there was a weird event where I had to, they wouldn't release the script because they didn't want it to get out. So I, I had to, and I was in the middle of rehearsals. So I would go to the audition room before rehearsal, read the script, go to rehearsal, went back on my lunch break, auditioned, and then went back to rehearsal. So it was like, just like constant like ping pong game. That went well, I had a call back the next day. I had to learn a song and more different sides so then I had to do the same thing where I went I went to rehearsal I went to the audition room for my lunch break read all the stuff went back to rehearsal oh and this is all at the beginning of rehearsal so I was like singing we were singing for like eight hours that day and then I had my I was the last one of the day um, for my callback and I went in and sang and read for Matt Trey and Bobby and Casey Nicola and and I remember making them laugh, and and you know it's great. And and 
the very least, I made, you know, Matt Stone and Trey Parker laugh. Yeah. Like, great. We're, we're doing fine. And, uh, and I booked the workshop the next morning. I mean, it was the quickest, relatively easiest audition process I've ever had. And I just fit. I was a, a, a natural match, and it worked out. And then I little did we know that it was going to become the juggernaut that it became. Yes. You know, I was just auditioning for a six-week workshop, and it at the end of the workshop, we knew that we were going to Broadway, and that was only a few months later. I think that ended in September, and we were starting rehearsals in January. Uh. And then I was with that job for three and a half years after it opened. So it was... It was just this, like, funny when you audition for something that you think is six weeks and it ends up being this, you know, life-changing event. Absolutely. And I, the the crazier part about the whole story is I couldn't get an audition, right? I, They had been working on this for years prior, and I could never get an audition. And Casey Nicola pulled me aside at one point. He's like, you know how you got this, right? And I was like, no. And he said... He had just landed the job as the co-director and choreographer, and this was a f- like a week before the auditions, and he was in a cab heading south, I think on 8th Avenue, and I was standing outside of a Starbucks, and he passed by, he saw me, and said, oh, Scotty, be good for this, I need to remember to bring him in. So the, the word of advice is, just stand outside of a Starbucks and you'll get a Broadway show. Absolutely. That's all you need to Were do. Are you wearing hot pants? Probably. So before we go on, the, um, though, you said the word workshop. Um, let's talk about the difference between a workshop and a lab. I'm just going to throw that out there just in case you don't. Because you were earlier today you were very passionate about the workshop because it gives the creative cast um, some rights to the show. Yeah, so the, the basic difference, and there's been a lot of this in the news because of um, there's been some interesting stuff with Hamilton um, and their original cast. Um, a workshop contract. Um, so, like, all shows need development, right? All shows, you'll go into a rehearsal room and you will work out the material to try to figure out what it is and make it the best it can be. Um, but when we're looking at workshop and labs, we're looking at the contracts that the actors are on. So, an actor's equity workshop, um, the difference between a workshop and a lab, while you're still doing essentially the same job, you're making the show better, you're developing. Uh, a workshop, you get ownership of um, a small ownership. So with a workshop contract, um, there are extra rights and benefits that you get with that contract. And that includes right of first refusal. So meaning if it moves to Broadway in its next iteration, they have to offer you a contract or, or they pay you out if you mm. don't move on with it. Um, so that's one really special privilege of a workshop contract. And you also get, um, you're part of a royalty pool for a show, um, which on a hit like Book of Mormon can be very uh, lucrative. It's, it's, a, it's a great, it's a benefit that I think a lot of actors don't necessarily understand the difference between doing a lab. Whereas a lab, you might get a little more money up front um, for your contract, you know, you might get paid eight hundred dollars rather than five hundred dollars, but you there's no profit sharing um, if the show moves on to be a hit, and there's no um, right of first refusal, so they don't necessarily oh. have any contractual obligation to use you or pay you to not use you um, in the future. So that's sort of the big difference between workshop and lab. Essentially, they're all doing the same thing, and there's lots of like 
details about contracts in the business and who's producing and how and whether or not it's through a not-for-profit theater and there's lots of different like mm. gray areas but that's the macro idea um, and at least for the actor point of view that's the difference between how you're compensated and uh, you know having benefited from a workshop contract you know I hope producers and actors can start to have a better dialogue in terms of what is the difference and what is appropriate for what show because um, it, it does vary. So it's good to know that the cast of, of Book of Mormon, who contributed very well to the future of the show, are going to be get a small portion of the royalties for the rest of the duration of that show. Technically, it's 17 years. Oh, so well, 17 years. Yeah, there is a cap. There but, is a cap. Um, and, and it's the workshop cast. So that's the other delineation for the, mm. the workshop contract. It's not the original Broadway cast. It's the workshop cast. Um, so it's... It's interesting. It's a, uh, it's an interesting part of the business and contracts. And know that you can always go on Actors Equity, um, on their website, and all these documents are available. They're available for, I believe, definitely for union members and for, um, I believe, for people not in the union. You can read these contracts. You can see what the benefits are. You can actually read? like. Oh. I know reading. Ah. Do they, have, do they have it in podcast form? I'm sure someone does. <laughs> so, if, excluding the business part of yeah. Book, Book of Mormon, how amazing was that experience for you? It was you? horrible. <laughs> it was horrible, Brad. <laughs> I got to see you in previews before, the, and I got a really cheap ticket, too, because it was on, uh, it hadn't opened yet. You had, like, the know. one discount seat. Yes. Well, because it was There dis- was, like, a was month. Di- for, like, a month, a it was month. discounted. It was discounted. That was it. And I remember I, I was just like, should I come see it? Like, this is a good deal. And you're like, I have a feeling it's going to take off. So if you can get a $99 orchestra seat, take it. I was like, all right. It was, I mean, from right away, it was unbelievable. I mean, that will never happen again. Well, Hamilton sort of did that. Yeah. No, I meant with your show. Like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, it was. We're not talking about Hamilton. We're talking about you. <sighs> Hamilton. Hamilton. No, Book of Mormon. I was... love Hamilton, P.S. Oh, I do too. I'm off book. You're off book? You yeah. have it memorized? Pretty close. Okay, you are a theater geek. I love it. Uh, I love it so much. Uh, well, you understudied Roy Romali in I Book did. of Mormon, and he's currently playing King George. Yes, he is. How was it understudying such a great role? It was a dream. It was a dream. Um, it, the whole job, it like ticked off everything, all of the check marks for me in terms of what I love about performing, especially performing on Broadway. Um, and one of them was understudying this really yummy juicy role that was fit it was fun it was funny um and to understudy someone like rory who is probably the nicest human on the planet Mm -hmm. so gracious so kind so sharing um it 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 was always a pleasure to be able to like step into his shoes because he was so gracious about everything and uh, I, I just adored him, and I loved watching him. I loved learning from him, and uh, it was it was really really fun because it never felt I I don't know if this ever feels like that. I I haven't experienced it, but as an understudy, it never felt competitive or weird. We knew what the jobs were, and we just got to and we were friends. Like it was lovely. It it was lovely playing that role when I got the opportunity to. But I also had such a fun track in my own. Uh, in my own regular show that I, I was just honestly I was just happy to be on that stage however they needed me yeah 
And how is it winning the Tony and Tony's? It was horrible, Brad. <laughs> it was horrible. That's sarcasm, in case you can't hear that through, yeah, you can't through the have, podcast. There's no emojis. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, the Tony, Tony experience was amazing. You know, um, it was so exciting to, to watch my colleagues and my friends and us as a collective succeed like and um and yet the funny thing was because so many of us had been through the workshop process we had this strange ownership of the show and we had so much fun together i mean that group of people they're insane the funniest most insane lovely humans we all loved being around each other yeah so while the show was like succeeding it was still our little show and we were still trying to make each other laugh so there was a great hominess to the show that felt impervious to the hype right. that we just got to show up and do our show our thing it that part of it didn't really change which was great um i mean i think our cast we were we all stayed together i think a year and a half which is a little unheard of yeah. for a Broadway show for the entire original cast to stick around that, that long. long. Yeah, um, and there are many original cast members still there now because it's a it's a nice place to work. Oh yeah, and um, it's still selling out. Yeah, it's still sold out. Still doing great business, and and it's still funny. I mean, I actually got to see it in London just a few weeks ago, and it had been just long enough that I actually got to see the show. Oh, right, yeah. Kind of for the first time, and I was there with my castmate Kevin Duda, and we were seeing fellow castmates who are in the show out there. Brian Sears is playing um, Cunningham, and KJ Hippensteel is playing uh, uh, Price, and Asmaret is playing Nabalungi, and so we got to see our friends in the lead roles, and yeah. we were sitting in these beautiful seats in London, and it was it was so lovely to go back and revisit the show with a little nostalgia. Yeah. And it's a great show. And I was really proud to have been a part of it. Is it exciting to go through the stage door and having to get around the people that have been sleeping there all night to get tickets that rush? Wait, originally? Yeah. Yeah. That was cool. I mean, it wasn't that crazy. People oh, was, weren't like sleeping I out on the street. I heard people were like sleeping to try to get... No, but the line would form early. And we had... We had some really fun fans. Like we had some fun people who were really passionate about the show, and uh, it was cool. It was an interesting part of it. The home for us was on the inside of the door, on the other side right. of the door. Um, so it was sometimes always a little odd to be like, "Oh yeah, this is a big thing." Yeah. <laughs> because on the inside, it was just our our little you know quirky weirdo family that I adored. Uh, so you were with the show for three and a half years. Yeah. At what point do did the unfortunate golden handcuffs start to get applied? And you said you mentioned that you kind of were like a little bit tired or restless with with being in a long running show. Well, you know, it's that it's that weird thing because the golden handcuff idea, I was happily handcuffed to that show, <laughs> quite genuinely. Um, I loved. It was funny. I was there, and I remember auditioning a little bit for other shows, but. There wasn't really anything I wanted to leave the Book of Mormon for. Yeah, why would you? Know, you? It was I was so content there. I was so well used. I was also the assistant dance captain, so I was what? What fancy? Yes. So I was I was I felt respected and um, needed in the building, and and that was amazing. Um, 
the hard part was just sustaining it for me was the just the sheer energy of eight shows a week and you know i i am not actually a 19 year old missionary i am in my 30s you know so just holding up the energy of being a teenager was had its own um set of uh trials that's hard yeah. it was it was physically demanding um and luckily through physical therapy and um and I, I, I never got injured. I was able to show up to my job every day and I was proud of that, but it was also, it was, ex, it was exhausting. And I, it was probably like towards getting into year three, like the thousandth performance or so, like you could, I could feel the drain. I could feel the fatigue um, of the show on my body. Yeah. Um, and that, that was sort of unnerving and, trying to look around and we're like okay it's the reality that uh, one job is not necessarily sustainable for a career yes you know and there's there's a reality to that and that's where all of a sudden my eyes started looking around and we're like okay so what else is on the horizon for me I'm not terribly interested in hopping to another show and necessarily being the quote unquote gypsy um, but I'm also not wanting to give up theater so where do all of those passions and needs and wants and where does that all fit? And um, and that's that was where that was the the interesting dilemma of my quote unquote golden handcuff. I mean, I there's I can't say it enough. I love that job. Oh no, I believe that you. job I was saw you like and you loved it. The it was the perfect amalgam of all the things that I love to do: be funny, be energetic be squeaky clean be satirical um to dance to tap dance i got to tap dance on broadway like oh yeah that's i got to teach song. the show to new people i got to you know all of those things were just really it hit everything so that's why like the word golden handcuff it has a pejorative sort of tone to it um you're using uh, big words in here. You're be- definitely. I know. I'm getting my MFA, just so you know. Ah, uh, pejorative. Pejorative, meaning wow. like negative, like yeah. as a negative connotation. Oh no, it definitely does. You've been talking a lot about sustaining your body, so this is a, uh, and I'm glad you didn't have any injuries. So this is a, a, a random question. I know that you've always you you caught, taught yourself the boy in the bubble. You deal with allergies and sinuses and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. But I mean, how does that affect your voice and doing eight shows a week and and all that kind of stuff, because that's a very common thing that I luckily don't ever have to deal with. So I'm curious, how does it affect you? I saw your neti pot. I mean, my neti pot. I still have it. I don't <laughs> even sing, you know, daily, but I still have my neti pot. You know, it it comes with the territory. Like the thing about Broadway is that you need to be at your best. Like there, there's an expectation with the money that's being spent, especially at Book of Mormon. Like I felt a personal responsibility to be at a high level always um and so part of the strain of a long run is how do you keep yourself healthy how do you keep yourself um not bored you can't be bored whether or not you are or not how do you work through it Mm. um and for me diet what i'm eating how i'm eating um am i exercising am i not am i taking class am i not like do I have other things going on in my life that 
um, intellectually stimulate me. That's the thing that I learned I needed. I needed, so I was taking writing classes and um, I was teaching on the side. Um, and even though they were taxing, you know, and took energy, it, it fueled me in another way um, that kept me healthy and balanced. And, mm. you know, going to acupuncture and going to a chiropractor and making sure I took my Zyrtec and you just make it work. And in a long run, you sort of figure out what you need mm. and you just sort of have to adhere to it. So for me, you know, I just needed to have some balance, some stimulation and my, you know, Zyrtec or Claritin, whatever the yeah. allergy medicine of the day was. You were, uh, to say, go back to the, the theater nerd thing, you were a total theater nerd. I am. I was. Well, I no, am you still, you still are. I mean, I remember having to borrow your computer or you'd help me with computers. I didn't know how to use it because uh, they were new to me, computers. But you were like, look at my screensaver, Playbill. And you were so- My homepage was, yes, my homepage was Playbill.com. Which I think, I mean, it was before, like, I've always seen you as this guy that is like, Broadway forever and ever and ever. So when you were like, guess what, Brad? I'm leaving the Book of Mormon and I'm moving to California. <laughs> I was shocked because I, th- I thought you would just go from show to show to show. So you mentioned writing and you mentioned being grateful for the show, but you you chose to leave the show. I did. I did. Um but I, I was really sort of calculated about it because the Book of Mormon is a once in a lifetime. Like I, I'm well aware that I may never get an experience like that. Um, and odds are I won't. Like that's the, it's a highlight of my life, of my career. Um, so leaving it was no small feat and I didn't do it lightly. And I knew I wanted to leave to move into something that would find betterment or enrichment or broaden my life um, to find a better quality of life. Is there more? There's more besides theater? There's stuff outside of theater. What? You're blowing my mind right now. crazy. (laughs) Well, I mean, not even outside of theater because the funny thing is I'm not outside of theater. No, but... I'm just in a different aspect of it. So I, while I was at, I used... The stability of the Book of Mormon to then apply to um, grad school, um, and I applied. I applied to ten grad schools for playwriting across the nation, and one school in the UK. And happily, I got into three. And of the three, UCLA ended up being the best match. Um, they're giving me a lot of teaching opportunities. I'm there right now. I'm finishing my second year. Um, I have two more quarters to go. And uh, it ended up being the perfect um, transition out of the Broadway eight show a week gypsy life. And I'm still in theater and I'm actually studying all aspects of theater, stuff that I, um, it's fueling me in such a passionate, strong way. Um, I'm loving it. I'm loving the exposure to um, the other side of things beyond just the, the musical theater Broadway sort of stuff. And uh, it's been really exciting to see where I might fit in lots of different um, realms of the industry. And, and because of the Book of Mormon experience, you know, if I am not opposed to acting, I'm not opposed to performing, I actually still quite love it. Um, but if I were to never perform on Broadway again, I, I would be okay because there's so many other places to fit in the industry and in the world um, that I'm really interested in exploring the other side of things. 
and performing as needed. I mean, it's yeah. been happening already in LA. I've been I've performed here and there these different sort of like functions and benefits and But there are theaters here in LA? There are th- there is theater in LA. There's actually quite good theater in LA. Oh no, I'm I'm joking. I'm from here cuz we're not supposed to be talking cuz I went to USC and I go I'm, to UCLA. I'm a Trojan. Go Bruins. Yes. Rawr. Uh so no, there is good theater in LA. There's actually surprising. Uh, I've been quite surprised and shocked because I thought I was coming out here. I came out here for grad school. I knew I was coming out here for grad school, but I also thought I was coming out here with a New York um, chip on my shoulder. Mm. Um, I was only out here, you know, just for school. And of course, theater couldn't match what I knew in New York. And I've actually been quite surprised. I've seen some of the most daring, adventurous, uh, challenging theater I've seen in in a long time. And, And it's here. Um, a lot of people experiment out here. People play with the form and with content, and uh, I've I've really I've been happy knowing the the theater community out here and being um, welcomed to a lot of it out here, which is great. Uh, I'm I'm much happier out here with theater than I anticipated. Well, you also talked about just the quality of life. You're not in a tiny little shoebox of a room, Mm-mm. and you can have. I mean, how big of a deal is a parking spot? You wouldn't get a parking spot in New York City. No. You, I mean, please, you'd have to, you know. I mean, it's pay what you're paying for rent. Yeah, essentially. And so I'm, I've, I've been very happy with the quality of life out here. And there's a, I mean, not to mention just the thriving um, film industry out here, film and television and the digital media world. That's really of interest to me. I, I think there's a lot of creativity in Los Angeles that, uh, I've been I've been happy to be able to tap into school. You talk about feeling very comfortable in the classroom uh, as learning, but you're also liking giving back and being a teacher. I love it. Is that such a nerd? <laughs> well, that was a nerdy voice. Is that, is that <laughs> it's nerdy? Um, yeah, no, it's been, and I knew this in New York too that I found teaching to be a great release for me. I, I enjoy it. I like giving back. I like. Um, imparting knowledge I like creating sort of a safe environment for students to um, explore their craft in whatever way that is so at UCLA part of my funding of my program is I teach I'm a teacher's assistant and sometimes that means I'm actually assisting a professor in like a big lecture classroom which I love um, and really interesting and challenging in its own right and then I've also had these smaller classes that I teach myself um, including like intro to playwriting. So I'm guiding, you know, 12 to 15 students on writing a 30 page play. And that to me is, it's a really rewarding experience. It's a lot of work, um, but it's fun to like, I love the opportunity and the privilege to like sit and talk about plays. Like that's so fun and interesting to me, to my theater nerd. Yes. Um, it, it's a, it's a really great, um, it's it's a great part of my life. I, I, I enjoy it, and I'm, I'm hoping to be able to do more. And that was a major reason for me wanting to go get an MFA, is to feel a little more well-rounded in terms of how I approach teaching, have a little more pedagogy. That's a big MFA word. Um, have some more um, pedagogy training, have a little more um, idea of, even about our history, because I think it's something that, we don't necessarily know a whole lot about um, as performers. We sometimes just, we know the basics and we move forward. Mm-hmm. And my, 
academic nerd really enjoys like digging into some of the history and then sharing it in the classroom. Do you have a newfound discipline for your life? Do you say I, I write two hours a day between eight and ten? I mean, have yeah, it sort of varies. Um, I wish my discipline was a little more uh, rigid, uh, but yeah, I'm definitely I'm writing every day. You that are. that much is is clear, and it's sort of school comes with its own sort of like anything. Everything comes with its own bag of like needs. And, uh, you know, with school, I also have to uh, I, I have time for grading. I have time for office hours. I have time for um, socializing. I have time for writing. I have time for certain projects. Like this quarter, I'm working on three different plays at the same time. So wow. it's trying to, you know, it's like anything. You're trying to navigate it and balance it as best you can. But it's a great challenge. I love it. Yeah. So earlier we talked about uh, checklists for bucket lists and that the Book of Mormon uh, filled so many of them. All uh, of them. All of them. I'm well, done. I don't know. I'm done. It's no, over. there's one that Book of Mormon didn't fill. What? That was to play Cosmo and Sing in the Rain. That's, ah, but I had already done that. That's what I mean. We're going back. <laughs> We're so going backwards. How is that? Yes. Going out, you're throwing me off. We're going out, <laughs> all out of order. I mean, achieving a dream role like that, I mean, that's yeah. a dream role of mine that I haven't played, so I'm very jealous of you right at this moment. Sorry. Uh, but I just remember you were constantly in tap class. I mean, this is this is going back from discipline, uh, you know, so it was connected. Yeah. You, you were always, you're like, I have tap class, I have tap class, because you were prepping for this new adventure in your life. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't tapped, like, Singing in the Rain, Cosmo Tap. It had been years. Like, I, I was a little rusty, um, and I knew the role was coming up. I knew even the audition. I prepped even for the audition just to get up to speed, um, and then I landed the role, and I had worked at Goodspeed. Goodspeed was like a home away from home for me. I had, mm. I've done five shows there, and I, I love it up there. Um, I love their culture. I love that they put on these old shows and they also um, cultivate new mm. work uh, everything about Goodspeed I'm, I'm a huge fan um, and their his that theater nerd history come on Goodspeed oh yes Man of La Mancha Annie, Annie. come on uh, but uh, so I knew everyone up there I felt really comfortable going up there um, and it was I knew it was going to be you know a challenge like that that role was 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 big and physically big and the big thing that I did before, because to me, I had done the show as a little kid in California. Oh. I had done it a bunch. I had played like Little Cosmo and Little Dawn. Um, so it's also a show that I've, I've had very fond memories of as a kid. Um, and the thing that I was always in awe of was whoever the Cosmo was, was doing the flip up the wall. Yeah. I was like, but I'm not a gymnast. Never been a gymnast. Yeah, me neither. But the crazy man inside of me was like I have to do that flip I can't be the Cosmo Brown who doesn't do the flip it's gonna happen so I went and got private training at Chelsea Chelsea Pier um, Chelsea Piers is it plural? Piers Piers yeah. Chelsea Piers um, but I think it's just one pier so I went and got a private trainer who who helped me figure out how to do the backflip in tap shoes no, that's not in tap shoes. Oh, it's not in tap shoes. Make them laugh as was in regular shoes. Oh, okay. Um, but I did have to learn how to do a backflip off of a board, which was amazing, and I did it. I'm still like, it's probably still the coolest thing I've ever done on a stage. Oh, yes, hands down. But it was hard. It was a. It was really. That show was interesting because, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't prepared to tell talk about this, but 
actually got a really bad review in Variety from that show. And it was the first time I'd actually encountered that. Oh. Um, a really, I mean, it was it was a rough review. And luckily up at Goodspeed, it's a long run. And I was, I made the mistake of reading it. I was crushed. I, and I remember it really took me, took me for a loop. Um, and I was really hurt by it and I was discouraged by it. Um, but the beauty of that production and the fact that you still have to, you know, whether you get a bad review or not, or whether or not uh, people are liking what you're doing or not, you still have to get up and do it, right? You still have to, there yeah. are still other people coming in, sitting down, uh, paying their money to come see you do a show. And it was really sort of rewarding to have to work through the review um, in this long run. I think it was like a 10, 10 or 11 week run and to figure out a way to rebuild confidence amidst mm. that um, that review and it happened I remember people who saw the run saw my performance at the beginning of the run and towards the end of the run and the marked difference that, that came about um, and sort of having to like on my own terms like take that in and, and let that be the process and the lesson to take away from it not that oh, you suck because someone outside of this whole experience said so, but just because you know what you went through. Yeah. Um, which is, it's still, I mean, it's st- it's so funny, even talking about it now, it's still like, it's got a little pang to it. It's yeah. got a little barb to it, um, but it's part of the industry. It's part of what you have to, fig- have to figure out how to overcome or deal with. Because we're told no and rejections all the time. Yeah. And they're not asked about in print. Yeah. To have someone put their opinion down in print. Yeah, go look up that review. It's amazing. I'm not gonna look up like that's look it up. Negative. It's amazing. It's, oh no. Okay, I'm going to. You ready? You ready for the quote? Oh my god, it's 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 horrible. But it's like in hindsight, come on, you got this like amazing oh. pull quote. Okay, okay, I like my pull quote. And in make him laugh, he didn't. Oh. Oh yeah. See. Oh. All right. I had a friend that had I a see the pain in your quote. eyes while, yeah. while I'm telling you that. I had a friend who his pull quote was also awful was and then his name. Uh, so it's just sad, you it know. Is, and it I is think now it it's also we live in a world where there's cyberbullying and you can go on all that chat and just hear people say so and so was on today in this role and they were horrible. It's 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 really it's sad. It's a lot to navigate that we have to live live in this world and see that type of bullying and also say how do I not go on Facebook because there's going to be um, something about a show or how do I not do that because it's different you know you can avoid not reading a variety but like now there's boards and everything but we also have to find our own self-worth in uh, separate like someone can have the opinion that I sucked like that's ultimately okay it's in their right. It sucks that they have to put it in print. It sucks that they have to put it, you know, but everyone's a, allowed their opinion. Um, he didn't think I was funny. Okay. It's, but that, but to then like somehow equate that to me to mean I am actually not funny, that's where the, when we put the worth of the review or the quote or the bullying, to ourselves, which sometimes happens. Right. That's the tricky part. That's the tough part. Um, is finding ways to to detach from 
from those quotes. Um, and it's it's yeah, I don't exactly know how to do it. And because I because you, you, you I mean though. yeah, how no, did I didn't do it? do it because I'm still I'm still talking about the damn quote. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but I mean, but you work through, through it, it, right? Um, and it's it's trying to not let it define you entirely. Right. No, it's it's true in finding that that those tools are finding something that's going to get you through it. Yeah. And you were able to do it, but you don't have like a like any clues to say, no this is what I did. I it's just you got to keep showing affirmations up. Or I you got to keep showing up and then also take your own survey, you yeah. know? Do you agree with them? Do you not? Do yeah. you you know is there room for improvement? Yeah. Yeah. But I it's, think you're really funny. Thank you. Um, speaking Thank of, you. You're welcome. Speaking of Goodspeed, uh, you did a show of Goodspeed that um, I'm very fond of, and I didn't even see it at Goodspeed. Uh, I saw it recently in concert. But you did Emma Daughter's Jug Band Christmas. I did. Which hardly anyone's going to even know what that is. But it's my favorite Christmas. It's the greatest Christmas movie ever. Of all time. I quote it weekly and not even at Christmas stuff. It was Jim Henson's first full-length um, sort of television it was a movie, but it was for television. For it's HBO. so good, and I—I I mean, I remember when you got it. I was excited because you're playing one of the four band jug yep. band players, Wendell the Porcupine. Ugh, I love Wendell. Emmett, um, and he gets the mashed potatoes line, yep. which is one of the best lines. Yeah, he—he he gets to blow the jug. Yes, it's a—it's a, just a great thing. I remember when they were Goodspeed was doing it. I was very like, I was not excited because I was like, they're gonna ruin it. They're gonna ruin it. So I didn't see it. They just did the concert version of it as Below 54, and I went. It was so charming. It's It was one of the most charming pieces I've ever been a part of. I, I Chris Catelli was our leader. He was our director on it, and he, he and he also was a giant fanboy. And he sort of reached out when he was casting to other people who were, like, giant fans of he that movie. He reached out to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, this was a while ago. Yeah, so he reached out to me on Facebook. I probably wasn't even on Facebook then. See, that's where the internet comes See, in. See, then you have to like you have to be twittering and face. I'm just not that. He guy. reached out to me because they had done it the year before. This was the second year uh, that they had done it, um, and they needed a Wendell. And he he reached out and he knew I had let him know at some point that what a giant nerd boy fan I was of the original. I just I love that mo- that movie and. I went up to see it the first year, and it was just, it was this charming, charming piece of theater. I, I, the the magic they did with the puppets, and then humans in these like big pods, and we looked like giant puppets. It, it was so lovely, and that music by Paul Williams, and Paul was there for a lot of it. I actually got to work with Paul twice. He also did Happy Days, and he, you did Happy Days. I did Happy Days. At Paper Mill. I, I didn't think I knew that. Yeah, I'm on the, I'm on the cast album. You're on the cast album. Scooter. I played Scooter, but really the, the joy of Happy Days was the fact that my resume says that I understudied Chachi, Potsy, and Ralph. Oh. I mean, come on. That's, 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 that's money. That's money. That's money. Potsy. Come on. The word Potsy on your resume? Yeah. And Chachi. Oh, Chachi, yeah. Chachi, you, too. Yeah, you look like a good Chachi. I don't look like a good Chachi. No. Blondish Chachi that's yeah. ever been. Yes, but uh, but but Emmett Otter and working with Paul, like he's another one of those humans that I came across that I just wanted to be around him. I, the fact that I got to be in the room with someone that 
um, lovely and funny and you know to me like he wrote the rainbow connection like that yeah. is mind blowing he's yeah. changed the world with his music and he was so humble and lovely and to be in the room with that kind of talent and humility at the same time like that to me is the win of all of these experiences is like being around these like idols these greats these heavyweights and the fact that they're all just human they're all just funny yeah. great interesting people um that that has always been like the great takeaway um so that that was a really special that was a special christmas oh i bet and it's interesting i love the fact that you said you reached out to christopher catelli because and and finding out that these people are are humans because there is a part of this business that i don't love and it's the the networking and the keeping in contact with people it's hard and the, and the following up and it's figuring out how to do it without being annoying the fact that you reached out to him and obviously you did it in a gracious way have you found a way of how do you maintain your um your pride without and networking at the same time it's doing it without expectation i mm. think that to me yes. you can smell when someone is even now that i've been a little bit on the other side of things you can smell from a mile away when someone is um blowing smoke up your ass or when they're writing you to get a job yes rather than actually just wanting to share information or to connect like i know specifically with chris catelli i wrote him not to be in m and otter i wrote him to let him know how thrilled i was that he was doing it do you know that was the i think i think that's uh i genuinely just wanted to tell him how excited i was for him right. um with no expectation of a job truly there was there was none it's being authentic in your connections I would never write to someone who I didn't actually have a connection with. Right, and say, um, act of desperation, or... Please hire me. Yes. It, it, that's never been my MO. Um, I'm, I'm more interested in fostering genuine working relationships um, rather than getting a job. Because the thing about the career in the industry, no matter where you are, um, it's about working relationships, mm -hmm. functioning relationships. And if you're using people to get a temporary job you might get the job but you're gonna have a harder time with uh with the marathon of a career um people have to trust you people have to know you i had worked for chris catelli before so he knows my rep he knows what i bring to the table and he knew i was a match for emma daughter right. i i didn't have to tell him that right he needs to know he had to know it on his own so i don't I don't know. For me, it's just always about authenticity, like showing your hands, like and and not expecting anything from someone because I think that's where people run and in, run into trouble. You know, there is a thing as writing too much. Right. There is a thing as um, being too cloying, being true to uh, uh, egocentric. Yeah. Ultimately, ask people about them. Yeah. You get a lot more out of it. Yeah. What is a necessary part of that is a necessary evil though too. In many ways you have to keep yourself in the social world of like meeting the right people and keeping contact with them and so that's but being authentic about it is great. Yeah, well and I guess that's it. Like I I never thought of it as an evil. Do you know what I mean? Like I've never thought of it as a way to survive. It's I want to be in the industry. I like talking or knowing about the industry 
and there are people who I naturally connect with in the industry. So to foster those relationships because I genuinely like someone or I like their work, it doesn't feel inauthentic or, uh, oh, I'm going to get this part and they're going to hire me. They're, they, they have to hire me. It doesn't – that's not a – it's just a bad frame. Yeah. No, I completely, completely agree. Put it on right. I, I adore Chris Catelli. I always have. If he ever hires me again, it doesn't matter. I will always adore Chris Catelli and what he does and how he works. And if he needs something from me, I'd gladly do it and, um, and vice versa. It was interesting, like, asking people for letters of recommendation for school. Oh. That was it for the application process. That was this unnerving thing because it was such a – I had to write letters and say, like, will you vouch for me? Will you like, and that was me asking for something of yeah. someone. And the lovely part was that, you know, people were willing, people were happy to. Um, and I like to think of that as like a reflection of the functioning working relationships I really try to foster and build. Um, and I didn't ask of people who didn't know me. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's, it's just trying to stay authentic and it's, it's hard. It's hard to stay authentic in this industry sometimes people do blow smoke up your ass or just yeah. say yes and that's yeah, eh, part of it but sometimes you think about the job to pay your rent and not about your career yeah so it's hard yeah this is an amazing interview and I know we've hit things like Book of Mormon and Cosmo but if you picked a, a moment that you would say was a career highlight a career highlight or anything that's just like a major special moment so there was this really special moment the opening night of Big River Actually, there are two moments from that night. So, and I don't know, I've had a lot of like career highs, but this, this moment is really special. One, one thing that happened that night was midway through the party, it was at this beautiful club that's no longer around. Um, and we found out that we got some great reviews and the party was just really lively. It was great. Um, but the, the dance floor wasn't really... Um, it wasn't functioning for our deaf actors because of the way the sound was working. Oh. So at one point, we put all the the speakers ended up um, being put towards the floor, so you could feel the vibration on the on the dance floor, and it worked. And we danced our booties off that night. It was just one of those like really joyous oh, wow. dance floor moments that everyone was included. Um, and with that night. There's a really special moment and a memory that is coming up right now because I've actually just, in the last year, lost both of these people. But my mom and my grandmother, I, there was a second floor and they were sitting up at a table. They were my guests that night. Um, and they came and they were so proud and they were, so, they were all dressed up and looking amazing. And my grandmother and my mother stayed for the entire party. We closed. We were the last ones out of, out of the room. But I have this visual image of them sitting up on this at this table, up on the second floor, looking down on the dance floor, um, just beaming, just so proud and excited and um, and supportive. And there's something about that image that, especially in having lost both of them in the last year, that sort of is a summation of like how I got there yes and the the power of that of their support and the love and 
and because it that moment was like the be- it felt like the beginning of this the past you know 10 15 years it really felt like the the beginning of the chapter and the fact that they were there and up at the table it's there's something about that image that is uh feels like a career high yeah and they're above you looking down just like they are right now yeah no it's a really it's a really potent image for me well thank you very much welcome what song would you want to end your podcast with you know what feeling good feeling good ah yeah does it have to be musical theater does it have to be broadway no like some people have changed been switching it up which is good. It doesn't always have to be. Yeah, let's do feeling good. I love that. The original. Come on. Gotta go original. classic. Oh, speaking of original, original cast member. <gasps> Book of Mormon. Oh. Brad, you have lots of you're you're you know you know what it is okay, to be okay, an original. Okay. You have more than I do. So you calm down. <laughs> All right. I'm feeling good about that right now. Well, I adore you. I adore you. Thank you. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me, yeah. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me. I'm feeling good Fish in the sea You know how I feel River running free You know how I feel Blossom on the tree You know how I feel It's a new dawn It's a new day a new life for me and I'm feeling good Dragonfly out in the sun you know what I mean don't you know Butterflies all having fun you know what I mean Sleep in peace when day is done, that's what I mean And this old world is a new world And a bold world for me Stars, when you shine, you know how I feel Send out the pine, you know how It's a new day, it's a new Welcome, Scott Barnhart, to Brad Ma- <laughs> What? <laughs>
Take two. Take two. Well, I guess we can keep going. I can just edit that. I was going to restart it. <laughs>